0: I want to eat dinner, but I have to wait. We don't want to
1: stand in between a seminary girl and her. Then.
0: Let's <laughs> <laughs> we'll start over here. <laughs> okay.
1: Pasuk in this week's parsha, chapter three,
0: verse
1: one. Pesach says, Aaron and Moshe. These are the offspring of Aaron and Moshe. On the day that Hashem spoke to Moshe and Harsinah. Today we're going to examine two Rashi's. I don't often use the board. Oh my goodness. Okay, Mrs. Rosenbach, I will do my best to make this a good show. I've heard great things, so
0: go ahead. Yeah, well... And I won't tell them anything.
1: I was gonna say we have to have a deal between us here.
0: <laughs>
1: if only my mom could be in this year right now. Anyway. <laughs> Two Rashis. Rashi deals with one fundamental question. Or it appears that Rashi deals with one fundamental question. If you look at the continuation of the Psukim it says, shmos, Aron. these are the children of Aram. What does the Torah leave out? No, it says that later. <laughs> I should have read the continuation of the Bible. <laughs> Girls, if it says, told us these are the children of Aaron and Moshe, and it tells us the children of Aron. what are we missing? <laughs> children of Moshe. So it comes along our first rashi and tells us as follows. Rashi on Ve'ela Toldos us Moshe says, listen carefully to the words because every word here matters. Aaron. The Torah only mentions the children of Aaron. It doesn't mention the children of Moshe. This is Rashi's problem. Vinekro Toldos Moshe. Why are they called the offspring of Moshe? L'fi shalom Torah. The first Rashi says, why are they called the offspring of Moshe. Why are Nadab and Avihu called the offspring of Moshe? After all, these are the children of Aaron. Lefi Shalom Dan Because Moshe Abenu taught Torah to Nadab and Avihu, it is as if he is a father. Rashi continues, and he says, Malame Shekola is Ben Torah. Ki'ilu This comes to teach us a fundamental lesson. Anyone who teaches someone else's son Torah, the Torah treats it as if you're the dad. So, girls... (laughs) I am your father. (laughs) It's like if I said it in a Star Wars voice, I am your father. James Earl Jones would be much better. So it creates a tremendous amount of daddy issues. Anyway, the... uh, (laughs) So, Lefi <laughs> shalom dan Torah. Yeah, I've gotten funnier since I was six. Anyway, Lefi <laughs> uh, Torah. Rashi says, "Why is why is Moshe Abenu called a dad? Because since he taught them Torah, Malalavakasuf the Torah treats it kiilu. What's Rashi's lashon? Kiilu Yalda. It's as if he gave birth to them. That is the first Rashi. There's another Rashi. This one is on the second half of the pasuk. Biyom Dibir. Rashi says as follows. Beyom Hashem es Moshe Na asu elu Ha Toldos Shalom. Not the banaviu are made the toldos, the offspring of Moshe. Why? Shalom Dun Mashalamad Mi Pihadvura. Because he taught them what he learned from the Almighty. Shalom don Moshe Rabbeinu taught them, Mashalamad. What he had learned, mipi Hagvura, from the mouth of the Almighty. Girls, there is an obvious question here. In fact, there are three, but we'll start with the most obvious. What is the obvious question when you're looking at these, these two rashis? It, it is an absolute repetition. Who asked? That was you? Excellent, superb. It's an obvious repetition. It seems like we're dealing with the same exact question. In the first one, it says Ela told us Arunamosha. These are the children of Arunamosha. The problem is, what happened to the children of Moshe? They're not mentioned. So it must be that we're only talking about the children of Aaron. If we're only talking about the children of Aaron, then we want to know why are the children of Aaron considered the children of Moshe? What does the Rashi tell us? Torah, since he taught them Torah, alava The Torah treats it as, as if he gave birth to them. Comes along Rashi in the second Rashi and seems to say the same exact thing. Nasu elu toldo shalom. These were the, made the children of Moshe. Why? Because he taught them. He taught them what he learned from the Almighty. Seems to be a repetition. That's question number one. But if we look carefully at these two Rashi's, there are two small but very important discrepancies between these two Rashi's. Two small but very important discrepancies. Let's see if anybody can get them. I'm going to say the entire thing again quickly. Let's see if you get it. The first Rashi, Lefi shalom dan Torah, since he taught them Torah, I'm skipping to the end of Rashi, "Mala le'alav ha-kosuv ki'ilu yodo. The Torah treats it, it's as if he was their father. The second Rashi says, Na'asu elu tolda shalom. these children were made, the toldos, the offspring of Moshe. Why? Because he taught them what he learned, yeah. Um, the first one is as if it it's their father. Excellent, place. superb, tremendous, and exactly correct. <laughs> I I didn't have more synonyms. I was working, <laughs> I just ran out at some point. Yes, in the first pasuk, in the first Rashi, it says it's Ki'ilu. It's like they were Moshe Rabbeinu's children. But were they actually Moshe Rabbeinu's children? No. Of course not. In the second Rashi, it says nasu <laughs> elu. Todo Shelo, they are actually Moshe Rabbeinu's children. The Torah makes it, not suelu. It makes it that they're Todo Shalo, They are the offspring. That is the first very important discrepancy. Excellent. There's one more I'd like you to figure out, and it's on the board. Yeah. Perfect. We are two for two. In Tomer Devora, we expect high level analytics, and that's what we get. The first Rashi. Very clear, very concise. L'fisha Torah. What did Moshe Rabbeinu do to become? It's as if he's a parent. He taught Torah. And the second one, where Moshe Rabbeinu is not only as if he's the parent, but he's actually the parent, it doesn't say he taught Torah. What does it say? He taught them what he learned from Almighty God. What did he learn from Almighty God? So why doesn't Rashi just say that? If it was good enough in the first Rashi, it should be good enough in the second. Because the
0: second one is probably saying that he taught them more than just the words.
1: Clearly. Which is what we're going to have to discuss. Okay. I want to share with you a fundamental yesod, a foundation. and Not knowing that I had Mrs. Rosenbach in the room. But she will be able to attest to this.
0: I'm assuming you remember
1: I grew up in uh, Farakaway in the 80s. The Faraquay of 2022 is much different than the Farakaway of the 80s. It wasn't a completely Jewish neighborhood yet. In fact, uh, many of us were pushed off of our bikes and had our bikes taken by some of the local Chavra Kaddish over there. <laughs> and there were a lot of... Uh, a lot of kids in the neighborhood, and specifically in the shul that I grew up in in Young Israel Farakway. As I look back on it, there were there were some interesting things. So we had awesome youth programming, awesome youth programming, and um, we had little leagues, we had great coaches, and all the good stuff. So one of the things we had was Tuesday night groups. So Tuesday night groups, there were different periods. So this is for young men, and I think they had for the girls, but it, wasn't, it was on Tuesday night also. I don't remember. So, uh, no, I was little. I, I really don't remember. Yeah, it's not like I'm doing the from thing. I actually don't remember. And we had karate. We had baking with Marla Chemetsky, I remember. We had uh, dodgeball in the gym, where there was like one kid who had, like eight years old was like six foot two and used to like kill the rest of us Mike Shetrit. Uh, one of the groups we had was called Jewish Awareness, which at the time, being like 8, 9, 10 years old, I didn't think anything of that. Like, why they call it? Jewish Awareness. Like, we were Jewish. But I guess, I'm assuming that somebody somewhere up in the hierarchy of the young Israel made some decision that, like, the Jewish programming, had, it literally was like, we had to let people know they were Jewish, we were not growing up in the most learned of synagogues. I would not say... I mean, were actually, there were some learned people there, but I think for the most part, and I was part of the younger generation, meaning my parents were from the younger generation, I don't think our parents knew a tremendous amount of Torah. I don't think they did. But what they lacked in knowledge, they more than made up with in dedication and devotion. And that's what sticks with me. When I think back to my experience in the Yangizar Farakwe growing up, I can't tell you that I remember any drusha that Rabbi Goodman gave. I'm sure they were excellent, but I don't remember. I don't remember anything I learned in Jewish awareness. I do remember that I was in a competition with Chaim over which one of us would get a Game Boy and which one of us would get Game Boy, which would get Nintendo Games, and he won the Game Boy, but I won the games. We were one and two, but he was one. This really might have been like a distant fifth. but the uh, I don't remember any of those things, but I do remember that our parents cared a tremendous amount about Yiddishkeit. That was clear. Even those parents that acted like they didn't cared a tremendous amount. And it showed. It showed in their dedication to the shul. Coming to our Little League games, being our coaches, sitting on the board of our youth groups, our parents gave us something that was perhaps more important and I say that with a tremendous amount of caution. they gave us something that was more important than the text you know my mom she's a special woman my mom did not grow up as an observant Jew she didn't grow up in an observant family my grandmother became a balashchuv at the age of 70 years old my mother is an insatiable person when it comes to learning Torah she cannot stop learning Torah. She's addicted. If there is a shear in the neighborhood, she is at that shear. In fact, on my parents' wall, uh, there's a magnet, and underneath the magnet there's, a, there's a, an RSVP to a wedding. A regular RSVP to a wedding says what? It says, will you attend or not? So my father wrote in calligraphy underneath it, will you attend? Mitch will not be attending. My father's antisocial. Mitch will not be attending. Paula will be attending, and she wants to know if there's a shir. That's my mother. If there's Torah to be learned, she's there. She has an insatiable desire for Torah. My dad, very different. My dad also did not grow up with yeshiva education, didn't become an observant Jew until he was later in his teenage years. He didn't grow up in an Orthodox home. My father grew up without any yeshiva education, so he didn't know how to learn. And my father, when we were growing up, used to say, a little learning never hurts, so let's learn as little as possible.
0: <laughs>
1: this is my rebellion. You understand? So we had a friend in the neighborhood, his father was a, uh, was a rabbi, he was a person who had smicha and who cared very much about learning. And that kid did not want to learn with his dad, because his dad was constantly pushing learning down his throat. So he used to say, can you invite me over for Shabbos lunch? This way, if I stay at your house for Shabbos lunch, I don't have to learn with my dad Shabbos afternoon. Or if I can't come over for Shabbos lunch, could all of the kids, because we had this group of like five kids, could all of the kids come pick me up from my house? Because then my dad won't be able to keep us, and he won't force learning on all of you. But he was wrong, because that dad did force learning on all of us. And so sometimes we would go, and his father would be like, "Okay, boys, before you go out and play, let's learn a little parsha." And it was always like a fight, like, "Dad, please don't do that." In my house, Baruch Hashem, we didn't have uh, we didn't have any learning. We were able to do whatever we wanted, so it was a it was a good place for kids to come hang out. I want you to know that I saw in my parents and in my father also a tremendous devotion to Judaism. My father was not a Yoda Sefer. I don't know if he necessarily would have even know that there was a halachic problem that he needed to ask a rabbi to. He just didn't have that life experience. But when it came to his kid's Judaism, there's no doubt that we knew what was a high priority. We knew what our father left behind when he became Orthodox. We knew what he could have been had he chosen not to have this lifestyle, but we knew that he sacrificed for it. And the reason that he was so involved in our education... Whether it was elementary school, high school, or the shul that we davened in, is because we knew that Judaism mattered to him. I want to diagnose a problem today. You go to school, and they teach you the menu. Imagine you go to a restaurant. Let's say you went to a restaurant. For me, I'm going to pull up an old restaurant from my childhood. There's a restaurant in the Five Towns called King David, Shalom. If you know, uh, if you're holding in King David
0: like my parents did Yeah, this people. is
1: King David. Was, we, had, we all had the same waitress. She was there for 20 years. They had an unbelievable pastrami burger. I still salivate thinking about that pastrami <laughs> burger. Now imagine I gave you sheer on the menu of King David. Imagine you were sitting in a classroom, and I said, Okay, girls, I want to tell you about the uh, the coleslaw. King David had great coleslaw that they put out on the table. And two different types of pickles. And I walked you through the entire menu. The steak, the chicken, the fried chicken the chulint, the kishka, the steak sandwiches, the burgers. I walked you through the entire thing. Imagine if you walked out of that class and somebody asked you, so, was it delicious? What would you say? You would say, it sounds awesome. I would love to go visit that restaurant. When I go to that restaurant, I'll be prepared to know what to order because I know that I'm probably going to want to try a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But you could not say, having left that class that you knew what King David tasted like. How could you possibly know that? What we do in schools today is as follows. We teach kids the menu, and then we wonder why they're not passionate about their Judaism. We say, this is what it means to be an Orthodox Jew. You have to learn the following texts, you have to know the following halachas, you have to behave and dress in the following way. And then we go to the girls, are you passionate about your Judaism? Are you excited? Are you on fire? And the girls go, no, of course I'm not. And the school system is somehow mystified. Why aren't these girls more passionate about their Judaism? And the answer is because you would never create this system if you were trying to inspire somebody. If you were trying to educate somebody, that's the system you would create. But if you were trying to inspire somebody, this is not the system that you would create. It's important to educate people. It's important to teach people how to go to a restaurant and how to order. You need to know how to dress, you need to know what the decor is, you need to know which fork is for what. There's certainly a lot of halachas of going to a restaurant. But just because I taught you the halachas of the restaurant, doesn't mean that you've tasted the deliciousness of the food. And that should be obvious, but it's not obvious. And so we have a problem today. We have a problem because we're going in and we're teaching these kids, and sometimes they're kids that have learning disabilities, And we're telling them, you have to learn a massive amount of Torah. So what happens with that kid who's not capable of learning a massive amount of Torah? What happens to the girl or the boy who's not naturally inclined towards being academic? But even if they are inclined towards being academic, even if they're going to get a 1600 on their SAT, is this a system that's going to make girls want to daven with passion? Is this a system that's going to tell the girls... In 20, 30, 40 years from now, are you still going to be giving this over to your children? And if so, how are you going to do that? Because if you just impart the laws of the game, it doesn't necessarily mean that your kids are going to want to play. Take the same thing with sports. We did it with the restaurant, but take the same thing with sports. I don't know this game, but my daughters, when they were little, they played this game, Machanayim. You girls know this game, This Is this like a girls' game? Yeah, yeah. yeah? Machanayim. It's like dodgeball, but for women? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Is that what it is? Yeah? Really really oh, it's intense dodgeball, I understand. It's better, than dodgeball. it's
1: better than dodgeball. All the boys have it wrong, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've never played Mahanayim.
0: <laughs> I imagine... Because if I
1: played it, I would speak with more reverence for the game. <laughs> so I have no idea what you experienced. Now you could tell me all the rules, but I imagine that some of you went to camp. And I imagine that whatever camp you went to, let's say it was Sternberg, right? You had these insane, intense machanayim games that were designed to, to like torture and murder other girls as they're being pegged with this ball. I won't know anything about your game. Why do people pay thousands of dollars to go to a game, and why do they pay thousands more to sit closer down? Have you ever gone to anyone here ever gone to a great game? and sat, like, all the way, all the way down. Many, many times, Chaim and I went to games with my dad's uh, tickets to the Sports Illustrated box. There's a difference when you go with the young Israel Farakway or Simcha day camp, and you're sitting in the nosebleed (laughs) section, right? after having gone on a RIVLAB bus for 45 minutes that broke down for two hours on the way to the game. There's a difference when you get to the cheap seats and the players are like little Lego people running back (laughs) and forth. right? It's still great, but it's not the same thing as if you're down right next to the dugout and you could see the players spit, right? Like that's then you're in the game, right? You go to a hockey game and you could smell the blood coming off of them as they're walking through. What's the difference? Because it's a better experience. You could listen the music is better on Spotify, but everyone wants to go to the concert. And you know the difference. You know when you're at the concert versus when you're listening to the music on Spotify. There's no doubt the music you're listening to on Spotify is better. But the the excitement the vibrancy of the concert, right? That's what it's about. You don't want to just watch the game on your TV. There's no doubt you'll have a better view, but you want to be at the game. There's nothing like sitting at a baseball game and eating a hot dog, right? There's nothing like that. That's why for years until they had the kosher stand, I want you to know the thing that want, the, like that thing that drove me, like go off the derrick more than anything, is I wanted to sit at Shea Stadium, the hot dog and a beer. I wanted to do that, you know. See these guys? They have it good, no? They have, like sauerkraut and a hot dog and mustard, and they're like shoveling in their face, and they're like taking the score, and they're drunk. Right? You Go to a Yankees game, right? You see those guys in like the bleachers? He's like animals that are like throwing things at the players. This is like that's baseball, no? And then Bar Hashem, they made the kosher stand, and we didn't have to go off the darach anymore. Now we could just now we could just overpay for a hot dog, right? And, and ice cream, and whatever, in that order, right? And we could have. Uh, we can have everything the Goyim have. Baruch Hashem. Something different when you go to the game and you're having a hot dog than you're sitting on your couch. Just like there's something different when you come to your Shalayim, your Kodesh, and you're learning Torah here. You're not studying the menu. It's alive. It's something you feel. It's something you taste. It's something you can describe to people, but it's something that they can't understand until they taste it themselves. That's Torah Seyretz Yisrael. That's Pneim Yisat to teach the soul of Torah is different than teaching the menu. And perhaps this is what Rashi means. This is what the Lubavitcher Rebbe says Rashi means. It's a very important lesson. Take a look at the first Rashi. Why was Moshe Rabbeinu considered as if he was the father of Aaron's children? Why? L'fisha dan Torah. What does lima Torah mean? What did he teach them? He taught them everything. He taught them what he learned, right? He taught them the Torah the of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He taught them all the halachas. He taught them do this and don't do that. He taught them all the stories, everything that was going to be in all of Tanakh. He taught them everything. Every Mishnayis, every Gemara, everything that was out there, Moshe Rabbeinu taught Aaron. Aaron's children. But that only makes you as if you're a dad. Why as if you're a dad? Because a father has a responsibility to give sustenance to his children. That's what a parent's job is, to support their kids. So, you can be supported by learning Torah. That's unbelievable. But does that make you a parent? It does not. What makes you a parent? Look what Rashi says. Shalom dan ma shalom an mi pi what made Moshe Rabbeinu not as if he was not of father. What made him an actual father? There was a rebirth. They belonged to him as much as they belonged to Arun. Biologically, Physically. On a spiritual level, they were his children as much as they were the children of Aaron Why? Because he taught them, not Torah. He taught them what he learned from Hashem. Moshe Rabbeinu had an intimate experience with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He went up and he encountered God Almighty. It was a powerful experience. And he came down and he successfully transmitted that. Now that's a big deal to say. Think about that. That means, girls, imagine you came to Tomer Devorah this year. And you heard a shear from... I don't want to pick on any one person. You heard a shear from Mrs. Berg, let's say.
0: Yeah?
1: <laughs> I had nepotism. I had to choose her. yeah. What if I would have chosen somebody else? Yeah, and you hear a shear from Mrs. Berg. And the shir really makes you think, in a way that you never thought before. And in that moment, you saw a vibrant Judaism... You tasted it. It wasn't just the menu. You saw something that you'd never seen before. Or let's say you went to a teacher's house for Shabbos. And you saw the way a mother lights Shabbos candles. Slowly and carefully, thinking of every one of her children. Is that something you learn in a textbook? When you see someone... Small things. When you see somebody whisper. Not loudly, because we don't do things loudly. It's not sneeze. But you see somebody whisper to themselves... L'akovich Shabbos Kodesh. As they're putting something in the oven. Is there any halacha that says that you have to do that? There's no halacha. It's just a sweet, soft, gentle thing to do. When you see people whose lives are not designed, and you'll forgive me for saying this in a crass and crude way, there are people whose lives are designed to amass stuff. That's what they want to do. How much stuff can I amass? Can I get the latest Tesla? Can I get the nicest house? You'll see it and you'll know. You'll know what people's values are. No, isn't that true? Or you'll see people who live simply because the main thing that they have in their life is not what they own, but what they know or what they can give. I'll share with you an amazing story. I'm 18 years old. I'm in Mevaseret. And I had a friend who uh, was a couple years older than me who was my Chavrusa. He was a guy who I had learned with in Yeshiv Farakwe many years ago when I was in eighth grade. He was learning in Mir Yeshiva. And I guess some sort of Kirov project, he invited me for Shabbos. So he says, come to Mir for Shabbos. You'll sleep right at my room is right off the base medrash, and you'll get to see what it's like in Mir Yeshiva, 8,000 Bachram. You'll see something you never saw before. I said, awesome. That sounds great. I want to be a part of it. So I told my Rebbe, I said, for Shabbos this week, I'm going to Mir Yeshiva. My Rebbe said, do me a taiva. When you go for Shabbos, Friday night... Don't go to the mirror. I said, okay, where should we go? He said, go to Karl and Stalin. It's a here in Yerushalayim. Davin and Karl and Stalin. I said, okay. He said, and when you get to Karl and Stalin, a lot of people are going to ask you if you want to go over for a, for a Shabbos meal, for a Friday night meal. You're going to have a lot of people that come over to you and they're going to ask you, come, come, come to my house. Say no to all of them. Tell them all the same thing. Say, I'm waiting for the American Gabbai. Okay? said, and then, whoever the American Gabbai sets you up with, that's where you go. So I called up my friend Avi, it's now a chashogarav in Yushalayim. I said, my Rebbe told me that instead of davening Friday night in Mir and eating the suda in Mir, we should go to Karl and Stalin, and then we should wait for the American Gabbai, and then we'll go to wherever, he said. So Avi said, okay, that's what you want to do, let's do that. So Friday night, we go to Karl and Stalin. Girls, do you know what davening is like in Karl and Stalin?
0: Yeah.
1: They shout, for sure, long. <laughs> They shout every word of davening. Shema Yisrael Hashem Hashem is thousands of Hasidim screaming at the top of their lungs. The only time it's silent is when they say Baruch Hashem Malchus and when they're saying they're quiet Shema Nesrei. Every amain is B'Kol K'Ocho. Yeheh Shmei Rabba blows the roof off. It's incredible. i never experienced a davening like this in my life. I was hashkama Minyan kid. We don't go, we we didn't have every loud amen in the world. It was unbelievable. I saw something incredible. And we're sitting there, me and my friend Avi, and every two minutes, you have a place for Friday night, you have a place for Friday night, you have a place for Friday night, you have a place place to go. Tons of people are coming over to us. So I said, we're waiting for the American Gabbai, we're waiting for the American Gabbai. Finally, the American Gabbai comes over, he goes, I understand you're waiting for Mm me." I said, yes. My Rebbe, he told me to tell people that I'm waiting for the American Gabbai. He goes, do you want a Hebrew-speaking family or an English-speaking family? I said, (laughs) I I need an English-speaking family. I don't speak Hebrew so well. I didn't want to have one of those awkward meals. He says, no problem. Stay right where you are after davening. I'm going to bring your host over to you. Okay? Davening ends. It's a davening like I've never experienced before in my entire life. Right after davening, the American Gabbai comes over with this guy... Long beard, long payas, the shagai. And he goes, this is your Friday night suva. He introduced himself, Salam him aleichem, said, okay, come home. We're walking home. You know how, like, if you're walking in Mea you know how you're, like, traveling back in time slowly, like, with each block that you go a little bit deeper into Mea So I got to, like, the 1600s of Mea We were, like, in the depths of the... D- no car had ever gone to where we were, because the streets were, like, this big. You know, there was, no, there was no possibility. They don't have to have the signs, no internet, in that section, because they couldn't possibly get internet there. They wouldn't, like, unless it was, like, coming from above. There's no way that they could put those wires in. There weren't phone lines, probably. We get to the house. House. We get to the apartment. The entire apartment, and they had a million children. It was, like, every time I stepped, it was, like, you have to be careful where you step, you didn't step on a child. The entire apartment could not have been bigger than this half of the room tiny we sit down we're like all cramped in on the table and we start singing Shalom Aleichem beautiful, very nice all of a sudden there's a knock on the door our host jumps up there's another Oreach. he brings him in, he sits him down they quickly put out a plate he sits down, Shalom Aleichem, Eshes Chayel and then they bring out the food now girls, I'm a foodie I'm a food, I like food. I like good food. I like good food. This was the worst food I ever had in my entire life. They bring out the... You can't botch chicken soup. It's chicken and vegetables in water. What could you possibly do wrong? This was the nastiest chicken soup I ever tasted in my entire life. I don't know, maybe the chicken was spoiled, maybe the vegetables were spoiled, maybe the water was spoiled. I'm not... It was coming. Who knows where that water had to get through to get to that section of Meishari? You know, it was probably going through pipes that hadn't been cleaned since the 1600s. It was nasty. And I'm doing my... Because, you know, it's like, you're sitting there, you got to eat it, right? So I'm like, it's an avoda. I'm uh, I'm working hard. I'm working hard. I managed to finish a little bit of soup, and I'm like, I can I can't. Fine. Then they bring out the main. If... if If a chicken could be poor, this would be the poorest chicken that ever walked the face of the earth. First of all, it appeared to me that this chicken had not been plucked. It had been shechted, it had been cooked. But there was a lot of... um, like it had a full beard, you know what I'm saying? The beard and payas that this chasidish man had paled in comparison to the amount of facial hair that was on this chicken. You grow sufficiently grossed out? Yeah. It gets much worse. <laughs> so I'm trying, I know something about the halakas of borer, I'm trying to figure out how to, like, get the... I'm not eating these feathers, I could choke on them, I could, like, floss with them, you know so Like, I can't... I can't, uh... I can't handle this. And then when I finally got to the chicken, it was like, and I don't know how this is possible biologically, I know what a chicken looks like, I know the skeletal structure of a chicken. Every bite had bone in it. Everybody, there was bones running through, every. it was nasty. But you look around and you see, there is not enough chicken on this table for these children. So you're forcing yourself to eat this because, like, you understand, this food came out of their mouths. This beautiful smiros and this beautiful divret Torah. But the food is nasty. And then they bring out dessert. Only for the three of us. For me, my friend, and the guy that knocked on the door. There was no dessert for everyone else. There wasn't enough, so I kept saying, "I'm like, I don't, I don't need, I don't need this dessert." Like they're like, "No, no, it's for you. The kids were so excited. The dessert is for our, our offering. It was a beautiful thing, and the dessert honestly was edible because it was like a bought thing from like a store. It was like, a, it was like ice cream sandwiches. I still remember. It's like Taffuti Cutie ice cream sandwiches,
0: <laughs>
1: which is not great, but at least it's edible, right? We benched, we left, we walked out of the apartment. And the third guy, the guy who had knocked on the door during Shalom Aleichem, he turns to us and he says, how do you know those like that family? So I said, oh, we don't know that family. We, um, you know, My, my Rebbe told me that if I'm going to Mir for Shabbos, we should have him by Karl and Stalin, we should wait for the American Gabai, and then he'll set us up with somebody. And so we went home with this guy. How do you know this guy? He goes, I don't. I knocked on the wrong door. I was like, you did what? Because I knocked on the wrong door. I knocked on the door to get directions because I was lost trying to figure out to go where I was supposed to go. But before I could even ask him, he just pulled me in and I was his guest for Shabbos. I have no idea what the couple that I was supposed to go to. I have no idea if they, like what they did. So I was like thinking, I was, I was 18 years old and I was like, what in the world just happened? These people had nothing. They had nothing. They had no food. They were clearly very poor people. I imagine that she went the last possible time, and asked the butcher to give her the scraps of chicken. That's the only possible way that she could have gotten that chicken. I imagine she used that chicken, she doubled down on it in the soup, and that's why the soup was so gross. They had nothing, but whatever they had, they wanted to give. I remember very few Shabbatot in my life, but I will never forget that Shabbos. Because you you could tell, their kids were growing up, they didn't have a lot of things, but you saw, the main thing in their house was having a guest for Shabbos. And the question is, what messages are we giving to our children? Let's be blunt about it. If you come home with an 80 on a math test, and your mom or your dad say to you, okay, 80, you could do better, you know. Like, is this your best? Do I, I never tell you you could do better, but if this is your best, like, if you're, is your best an 80, right? But if you come home with an 80 on a Tanakh test, or on a Gemara test, or a Mishnah's test, or whatever it is, or a halacha test, And the parents go, oh, 80, okay. Then you've sent a message. The message you sent to your children is, this is okay. Which one is more important? And you will know, and you do know, a tremendous amount about your parents and the value that they give to Judaism because you lived it. And your kids are going to get exactly what you give to them. They're going to know you better than anyone in the world. Our children know us better than anyone in the world. My kids could tell you exactly what my value system is, not because I've expressed it, but because they live it, they see this is where Abba's a hypocrite and this is where Abba's good. Just like you know that about your parents. We're all human, we're all struggling through it. The question is, what, what message are we sending to our kids? To be as if you're a parent means giving over the Allah. Spiritual sustenance. But to be a parent means communicating experientially, what your values are. I think that Klal is an amazing place. I think we have incredible communities all, all across the world. But if you asked me why girls are gaining something fundamentally different when they come to seminary and when they come to Yerushalayim, I think it's because it's just different here. my wife remarked to me, not that long ago, how lucky are our children that when we take a Tuul somewhere, it's like, which kivari, tzadikim, which kivari Tzadikim can we stop by? Right? You go up north. If you go up north as a family here in Eretz Yisrael, so of course you're going to go to Tzveria, you're going to go on the Kinara, but you're also going to probably stop by the kever of the Rambam and the Kiva. and if you're going the back road from Beit Shemesh to Yerushalayim, it's nothing to stop at Keberachel. And what is a Cholomoed day if not stopping at the Kotel to daven in the morning, starting your day there? That's a beautiful thing. And it's not the same as Disney World. And it's not the same as going to, and I think I'm dating myself here, going to F.A.O. Schwartz in the city. You used to go to F.A.O. Schwartz? We were
0: the last generation. You have
1: You have very deep memories of F.A.O. Schwartz? And the giant piano. And the giant piano. And the giant piano. I've lost them to a movie that wasn't around when they were born. Girls, I'm not saying that a Jew can't be a Jew everywhere in the world. Of course you can. But there is something extraordinary about being here. There is something extraordinary about seeing this life. And it is deeply inspiring. And your responsibility, and it's not just like a a nice thing, your responsibility... To your own children is to share with them not only lefi Shalom Dan Torah, but perhaps more importantly, Shalom Dan Ashalom What will your kids see? What type of mother will they have? Will they see a mother who confronts God Almighty and whose, whose life is about how can I pass this on to the next generation, dedicated to her children? Or Will they see somebody who just goes about it formally and just does it? Doesn't live it, but does it. You do the first, it's not bad. That's already, it's not a bad level. But that's like teaching the menu and not showing the kid the deliciousness of the food. And if we want to be successful in continuing this operation, we need to give our kids the passion of Judaism and not just the menu. Okay, girls, have a good Shabbos. (laughs)